Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First, first link. link. All right, from MIT News, and this is pretty cool. Researchers have developed a paper-thin loudspeaker that is flexible. Hmm. Oh. And it has the potential to make any surface into a low-power, high-quality audio source. Uh, I mean, they say high-quality. Like, I question <laughs> Well, let's get into some of the tech specs here. So... The thin film loudspeaker was a hand-sized loudspeaker, which weighs as much as a dime, and it uh, generated high-quality sound no matter what surface the film is bonded to. Wow. The thin film loudspeaker could provide, for example, active noise cancellation in loud environments like an airplane cockpit. We could mm. also obviously use this for 3D audio in a theater or even a theme park ride. And because it's lightweight and requires such a small amount of power to operate, this device is ideal for applications on smart devices where we obviously have limited battery life. Mm. So let's look at typical loudspeakers so we can kind of understand how, how revolutionary this is. They use electrical current inputs. Those pass through a coil of wire that generates a magnetic field, and that magnetic field moves a speaker membrane. That membrane moves the air above it, and that's what makes the sound we hear. But this new loudspeaker simplifies the speaker design by using a thin piezoelectric material that moves when voltage is applied over it. Oh. So instead of having the entire material vibrate, this design relies on tiny domes only a few hair widths across, and they're surrounded by spacer layers on the top and bottom of the film, and these same spacer layers also protect the domes from abrasion and impact. So the researchers used a laser to cut tiny, tiny holes into a thin sheet of PET, a lightweight plastic. They laminated the underside of that perforated PET layer with a very thin film, we're talking eight microns thin, of piezoelectric material, wow. which is called PVDF. And then they applied vacuum above the bonded sheets and a heat source at around 80 degrees Celsius underneath them. And because this PVDF layer is so thin, the pressure difference created by the vacuum and heat source caused it to bulge, created the hmm. domes. And the domes protrude in areas where they're not blocked by PET. So they call it a simple, straightforward process. To me, the way that it's read sounds like super fancy bubble wrap, basically. That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> it sounds like bubble wrap. Yeah. And now I just have to, like, control myself to not deliberately pop all the domes. <laughs> <laughs> so the domes are 15 microns in height. We're talking one-sixth the thickness of a human hair. And they only move up and down about half a micron when they vibrate. And hmm, each wow. dome is itself a single sound generation unit. So you do need thousands and thousands of these tiny domes mm. vibrating together to produce an audible sound. But here's what's crazy. This fabrication process enables the researchers to tune the material. They can change the size of the holes in the PET to control the size of the domes. So domes with a larger radius displace more air and produce more sound but they also have lower resonance frequency, and lower resonance frequency leads to audio distortions. So that's how they can refine some of the quality here. 
So once they perfected the fabrication technique, they tested different dome sizes and different layer thicknesses to come to an optimal combination. According to their demonstration, their energy-efficient device only required about 100 milliwatts of power per square meter of speaker area. By contrast, wow. an average home speaker might consume more than a watt of power to generate similar sound pressure at a comparable distance. So super efficient, right? Mm -hmm. And the tiny domes are vibrating rather than the whole film. So the loudspeaker has a high enough resonance frequency that it can be effectively used for ultrasound applications like imaging, right? Ultrasound wow. imaging uses very nice. high frequency sound waves to produce images and higher frequencies yield better image resolution. So this device could maybe even use ultrasound to detect when a human is standing in a room, kind of like hmm. how bats use echolocation, and then shape the sound waves to follow the person as they move, right? Wow. If the vibrating domes of the thin film are covered with a reflective surface, they could be used to create patterns of light for future display technologies, holograms. So this is a big deal in terms of like the options of how to use this technology. But I do have to say, I have an audio engineer in the house. I'm married to one. <laughs> I had to ask, <laughs> you know, what are your thoughts on this, right? And he said the issue they're going to run into is the material's ability to create low-frequency oscillation, kind of like we already talked about, right? It's why subwoofers need to be so big to get decently loud. Mm. He did note that we have had piezo mics and speakers for about 100 years. There's even one in his bass guitar. But this new material integration is what's different. He also wanted to note that microphones and speakers are the same in reverse. So all mm -hmm. the cool application we've been talking about with speakers could also be done with microphones. And since we are entering or are already in an age of massive surveillance, mm -hmm. it's worth noting that potential drawback application as well. Or, you know, maybe it's a bonus depending on what side of the table you're sitting on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. For our NSA listeners. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> Your job's about to get a whole lot easier, hopefully. Yeah. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe not, hopefully. <laughs> we'll see. But ultimately, the applications are about 10 years off in terms of really hmm. seeing this widespread at scale. So uh, plan accordingly. <laughs> right. I'm just kind of imagining the annoying uses of this. I mean, we're talking about a cheap... <laughs> Very thin, potentially <laughs> difficult to see or find speaker mm -hmm. slash microphone system, mm -hmm. you know, and yeah. like, mm -hmm. I'm just imagining all of the public spaces being plastered with this crap. Oh, the and trolls like, are going to have a field day. Oh, that too. Teachers yeah. will never be safe again. <laughs> yeah, very true. Very yep. true. Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from theguardian.com. It's titled, I feel your pain. Confessions of a hyper empath. Ooh, this yeah. must be a tough time for them. Whew. Oh, yeah. This is written by Joanna Cannon. And as a very small child, Joanna returned from a weekend in Cromer with not only a collection of seashells, but an exceptionally broad Norfolk accent. Oh! At first, everyone found this highly amusing, but it was less funny when Joanna Cannon was still talking that way several weeks later. <laughs> Her mother tells her a similar thing happened when they took her to Wales and North Yorkshire. Hmm. It wasn't just accents either. As a five-year-old during a particularly boisterous garden game with a friend, she ran into the kitchen sobbing hysterically and clutching her hand. Her mom said, what have you done to yourself? She said, it's not me. It's Aww. Susan. She's fallen over. Aww. Back then, there was not a name for the subconscious appropriation of other people's emotions and accents. 
but now it's fashionably referred to as being an empath. Hmm. So relating to someone else's pain is a natural human response. We're all empaths to a degree, but hyper-empaths are different. At first glance, a tendency to relate to others so keenly is wholly positive. People say whenever Joanna Cannon complains, you're so compassionate. But the problem is that along with your own issues, you end up dragging everyone else's pain and anguish around as well, which can actually be quite draining. Hmm. Carrie Danes, consultant psychologist and best-selling author, says empathy, like many sweet things, is fantastic in moderation, but debilitating in excess. If I allowed it to, it would lead at best to some bad practice and decisions on my part, and at worst, complete incapacitation, she says. And it's a tricky balance, one that Joanna battled with constantly as a junior doctor. Medicine was an unexpectedly lonely job. She envied people who could leave it all behind at the hospital gates at the end of a shift because she took everything home with her. Her concentration was shot to pieces, and the things that usually brought comfort, watching a film or reading, became impossible. Mm -hmm. Instead, she would sit and ruminate, turning over the day's events in her mind, even ringing the wards on my day off to see how a patient was doing. In a supermarket queue, she once overheard a complete stranger discussing a lost dog, and she was so upset for this woman, she spent five hours at home trawling the internet rescue centers trying to locate it. Aww. Yeah. The dog did come home, by the way, which uh, she's telling you because she knows there will be fellow hyper-empaths reading or listening who will be worried about it. I was legit worried. (laughs) So it seems counterintuitive that people with hyper-empathy would work in a job where they're exposed to extraordinary amounts of suffering, but the caring professions are knee-deep in empaths. Hmm. Perhaps the ability to understand someone else's pain means they're especially driven to try and help them to fix things. The desire to help someone is overwhelming, and on a slightly less altruistic level, if you can make someone else feel better, you will, by default, start to feel much better yourself. Mm -hmm. Dane says it's more useful to think of it as rational compassion, a concept which originated with author and psychologist Paul Bloom. Mm -hmm. If we can let go of the feeling with but retaining the feeling for, we've pretty much cracked it. The trick is identifying an incoming emotion and adjusting our reaction accordingly. Mm-hmm. If you're angry about animal cruelty, volunteer as a dog walker at your local animal shelter. And if the report of a serious road accident upsets you, write to your local council about speed cameras. So being a hyper-empath isn't all pain and misery. They can make great listeners and great friends because they understand others. They also have generally a very good intuition, the gut feeling about something. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, it's right. Mm-hmm. But she does still have a thing with accents. A few weeks ago, her Australian neighbor knocked on the door asking for a favor, and as she thanked her and walked back down the drive, she shouted, No worries, mate, at the top of her voice, like I was auditioning for a part in Neighbors. And uh, she says, I wasn't taking the mickey, honestly. I'm just quite absorbent. (laughs) Oh, I feel triggered about that. Good thing I'm going to teletherapy coming up. Right, right. Do you consider yourself a hyper-empath, Angie? You know, I think I can slip into it on occasion. Mm -hmm. It was a lot worse before. I learned some coping strategies, but I used to have to avert my eyes because the sight of roadkill would have Mm -hmm. me burst into tears every time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it definitely seems like being a doctor is not the thing you want to do. No, you want to be an actor, you want to be a writer. She had to find out the hard way. (laughs) (laughs) After so many years of medical school. (laughs) Yeah. Next link. Next link. All right. This next article is from CBC Radio, and it's called A Margarine Heir Vowed to Give Away His $25 Million Fortune in 1970, 
it didn't go as planned. Hmm. Mm. So it's a little bit of a mouthful. The saga begins in January of 1970 when Michael James Brody Jr. was flying back from his recent honeymoon in Jamaica. At the time, Brody was the 21-year-old grandson of margarine magnate John F. Jelke. And as a romantic gesture, he had purchased every seat on the flight so that he and his new bride could have the space to themselves. And it's not super clear if this was something Brody had been thinking about for a while or it was maybe part of like a guilt trip from his wife saying this is too much, we don't need all this. But whatever conversations may or may not have happened on that flight, what we know for sure is that when the plane landed, reporters were already waiting for them on the tarmac in sort of a gossipy following the movements of the super rich kind of way. Mm -hmm. And Brody stepped off the plane and immediately announced that he was going to give away his entire inheritance, quote, in order to spread love and cure the problems of the world. Wow. He then Mm. gave out his home address and personal phone number Uh, and told people to simply get in touch and tell them how much they needed. uh, Which, (laughs) you know, (laughs) on the surface seems objectively insane. But there was definitely a bit of a PR angle to it as well, because suddenly every newspaper in the country was talking about the hippie millionaire who wanted to give away his money And Brody even appeared on the Ed Sullivan show, ostensibly to talk about his charitable efforts. But also while he was there, he played a Bob Dylan cover on a 12-string guitar. So, like, the whole spectacle was just kind of weird. But as you would expect, people mobbed his house. Tens of thousands of letters started pouring in. And not even the post office could handle it, let alone Brody, who had made no plan for where he was going to store all this mail or how he was going to have time to even (laughs) open a fraction of them. And he did actually try to start going through them and started writing checks to people. But it only took about a week and a half for the whole thing to fizzle out completely because word got out that the checks he was writing were bouncing. (gasps) Because it turns out Brody's money was all in a trust fund that he could only (laughs) access a little at a time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dynastic wealth makes me laugh. Once you get past the, like, first generation, oh boy. Yeah, it definitely damages you. And when reporters asked him why he hadn't thought of this beforehand, he told them that he'd been tripped out on drugs when he made the original (laughs) promise. (laughs) This is fabulous. Uh, I'm sorry. Yes. Well, unfortunately, it does get a little sad now. His life continued to go in that direction. Brody spent the next three years struggling with addiction and mental health issues before ultimately committing suicide at the age of 24. Oh, jeez. I know. I'm a downer. But (laughs) at the time of his death, there were still around 100,000 unopened letters from this fiasco just stored in boxes. And a good portion of those boxes ended up in the possession of a film producer named Edward R. Pressman, who had employed Brody at some point and is probably best known for the films American Psycho and The Crow. Pressman had acquired the boxes hoping to make a feature film about Brody's life. It never panned out. And the boxes just continued to sit collecting dust until around 2010 when one of Pressman's employees happened to discover them in a storage unit her boss was having her clean out. Her name was Melissa Glassman, and she decided it was time to make a documentary about this whole event. Not so much about Brody, but about the people who had written these letters almost 50 years ago explaining their dire circumstances and asking for money. So she and her crew spent hours and hours reading through as many of the letters as they could and trying to find these people and ask them about what had motivated them to write to Brody and basically find out how their lives had turned out and how maybe the money would or wouldn't have changed anything, right? Like, there's definitely Mm -hmm. circumstances where all the money in the world wouldn't have fixed their problems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Anyway, long story short, the documentary was finished and is now available to watch. It's called Dear Mr. Brody. And if you're interested in checking it out, it's currently streaming on Discovery+. Plus. Glassman has, of course, done a lot of publicity interviews, and she says the letters that really stood out to her were the ones that asked for money for someone else. One woman, for example, asked Brody to help her neighbor, whose home had burned down, while a 14-year-old girl asked him to simply donate to the Easter Seals because that was the charity that ran the school that her deaf brother attended. Glassman also noted that there wasn't as much kind of blatant grifting as you might expect. She said she really got the sense in a lot of these letters that these people just wanted to be heard, to have their struggles known and understood by someone else, even if they thought there was no chance this guy was ever going to actually send them any money, which he didn't. They were right. (laughs) And if the documentary is not enough for you and you really want to get into the firsthand materials, about 30,000 of the letters have now been donated to Columbia University's Special Collections Library for Preservation. They don't say exactly how many boxes that is, but I imagine it's a lot. Like, I feel like these have just been moved to a new storage unit, you know? Mm -hmm. But it does kind of put the ease of email and the modern age into perspective. (laughs) You know, if you did this today, you'd get hundreds of millions of requests. But these people were all, like, whipping out their old-fashioned stationery and investing (laughs) at least the cost of a stamp on the off chance that it might pay off. There's just a different vibe to it, I guess, Mm -hmm. if you're in the 1970s offering millions of dollars to people in need. It's almost like GoFundMe links on Twitter. There you go. <laughs> Those are two things that would not make any sense to Brody or anyone else. <laughs> Just trying to translate it for our hip now listeners. That's right. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. I know that you guys have been wanting to know, but Science Focus finally has an answer. Why does a duck have a corkscrew shaped penis? Finally. Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's one of those things. Maybe you have not dared to wonder, but listener, I invite you to be curious because we go into depth and be glad you are not seeing the images I am. However, if you want to see them, they are on science focus. That's me being a little rude. They're fine. It's bodies. Whatever. Don't body shame the ducks, Angie. (laughs) I I shouldn't. I shouldn't. (laughs) I I love biodiversity and I got to say it doesn't get more diverse than this, okay? (laughs) So content warning, here we go. You should know that it's not a traditional phallic shape, at least traditional for humans and they do appear to be covered in small little spines in some species of duck the penis grows in the breeding season and then degenerates afterwards (laughs) the size that the penis grows to can depend on the environment some Hmm. even grew as long as 18 centimeters the ruddy duck has a total body length (laughs) of only 39 centimeters okay so proportion wise (laughs) so I'm sure you're wondering yes duck vaginas are also corkscrew shaped but get this they turn in the opposite direction to the duck Uh, penis (laughs) dr brennan quoted saying they are like a labyrinth the entrance has several blind pouches followed by a series of narrow spirals like that labyrinth metaphor more literal than you think so okay so how exactly do ducks have sex The answer, according to this doctor, is quickly. (laughs) 
the male penis ejaculates in a third of a second. Wow. So a brief cloacal contact is required for insemination. So while the males have these long, flexible penises, the females' anti-clockwise vaginas give them a level of control. Quote, those complex structures prevent full eversion of the penis of unwanted males, so their sperm ends up closer to the cloacal entrance, where the females can get rid of it more easily. If the female does want to mate, she can relax her cloacal muscles to allow easier access. I mean, it's nice that they've been able to evolve these defense mechanisms. I mean, that would be kind of handy, I think. You know, and it, it kind of, not to be too chicken of the egg or mix up my avian metaphors here, but <laughs> it may almost be that <laughs> it's hard to know whether the default for duck sex being somewhat forced mm. is... I, I can't tell. You can just cut all of that out. My brain hurts after this. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from theguardian.com, and it's titled, Russia deploys trained dolphins at Black Sea Naval Base, satellite images show. Hmm. So Russia has deployed trained military dolphins, possibly to protect its fleet from an underwater attack, according to new analysis of satellite images. The U.S. Naval Institute, or USNI, reviewed satellite imagery of the naval base at Sevastopol Harbor and concluded that two dolphin pens were moved to the base in February at the start of Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. Russia has a history of training dolphins for military purposes, using the aquatic mammals to retrieve objects or deter enemy divers. The Sevastopol naval base is crucial for Russian military as it sits in the southern tip of Crimea, which Moscow seized in 2014. According to the USNI's analysis, many of the Russian ships anchored there while out of range from missiles are potentially vulnerable to undersea attacks. Ukraine had also trained dolphins at an aquarium near Sevastopol in a program born out of a Soviet-era scheme that fell into neglect in the 1990s. But during the Cold War, both the US and Soviet Union developed the use of dolphins whose echolocation capabilities can allow them to detect underwater objects such as mines. And the U.S. has spent at least $28 million maintaining its own troops of dolphins and sea lions, which are also wow. trainable, to potentially help with conflicts. Oh, but... Yeah. Sorry, I'm getting hyper-empathic. Like, if we <laughs> yeah. can train them to do such things, like, need it be in that direction? Oh, I mean, at least they're giving them the intelligence and the tools that they need to maybe survive. Like, riding a horse into war... That horse doesn't know what it's doing. It yeah. doesn't. I mean, it's lucky if it gets armor, but it's definitely not going to have any weapons to fight back. It sounds like these dolphins are at least, you know, they're like super agents. They can get something done. Yeah. And, you know, if you can balance a beach ball on your nose, you're ready to enlist. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> the Sevastopol program was resurrected in 2012 by the Ukrainian Navy, but the mammals fell into Russian hands after the 2014 invasion of Crimea. Ukraine unsuccessfully demanded the return of the animals, and R.A. <laughs> Novosti reported that Moscow planned to expand the scheme. Two years later, the Russian Navy announced plans to buy five more dolphins, launching a bidding process for a 1.7 million ruble, or about $21,000, contract to deliver dolphins to the Sevastopol base by the end of the summer. Where did they source these dolphins? Who's selling dolphins yeah. to the Russian military? Because I know I I'm so waiting many... for that article. Yeah, like, do dolphins have their own private military corps? Because like, I'm like, 
<laughs> this dark marketplace of dolphin dealing needs to have some sunlight. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> most likely they're just, you know, kidnapping them and then force training them. That's what Oh, I'm gee assuming, golly. Right? But, um, <laughs> yeah, so satellite imagery from 2018 revealed Russia also used dolphins at its naval base in Tartus, Syria, during the Syrian War. And dolphins are not the only ocean creatures that Russian military may have trained. A beluga whale spotted off the coast of Norway in 2019 was believed to be trained by the Russian Navy. Fishermen reported a beluga whale wearing strange harnesses, which may have held cameras, harassing uh, their boats, pulling on straps and ropes from the side of boats. Are they not endangered? Well, if they weren't before, they're going to be now. Now that word's gotten <laughs> out that they attack ships, people are just going to be indiscriminately killing anything they see coming close. Yeah, there's... A whole lot happening in the world that I am reminded of every time I do this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, every child dreams of being a marine biologist. They just don't necessarily think <laughs> they're going to be working for the military when they do it. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, sometimes that just stops at marine. And there you go. <laughs> right? uh, next link. Next, next link. link. Well. We'll all love a good round of confirmation bias, and I'm happy to report that the next article very much tells us what we all want to hear, which is they're all good dogs and it has nothing to do with their breed. Oh, uh, yay. yay! Yeah. To be fair, there is a lot of data backing up this study, which involved owner surveys of more than 18,000 dogs, as well as DNA sequencing for more than 2,000 of them. And that part of the study is actually still ongoing through an online database called Darwin's Ark where you can voluntarily submit a DNA swab of your cat or dog along with a survey of their personality traits and help them confirm even better what the data already seems to be showing so far, which is that breed has almost nothing to do with anything about a dog except their physical appearance. Yay! Ooh, wow. The researchers found that on average, a dog's breed accounts for only 9% of the variations in behavior between dogs. Take, for example, howling, which people tend to strongly associate with Siberian huskies, being a husky does make a dog slightly more likely to have howling behavior. But what really matters is a specific region of DNA that is associated with howling and can be found in pretty much every breed. Basically, what it's saying is that the current genetic distribution of our worldwide dog population happens to be that more huskies have that region of DNA, but that DNA doesn't make them a husky. And with a little effort, you could easily breed a whole pack of pure-blooded huskies that don't have that gene or a whole pack of purebred chihuahuas that do. It's a correlation, not a causation. No thanks on the chihuahuas with the genetic tweak of constant no. <laughs> Howling chihuahuas. No thanks. So Kathleen Morrill of the Broad Institute and the Chan Medical School said that the biggest strength of their data set was the number of mixed breed dogs. And that part of the problem up until now has been that a lot of dog behavioral studies have excluded mixed breed dogs, even though that's exactly who you want to look at if we're trying to separate behavioral DNA from physical DNA. Mm. Yep. They noted that with these mixed breed dogs in the mix, so to speak, they were able to trace the origins of these behavioral genes back to breeding that happened prior to the 19th century when dogs were primarily bred for tasks. Whereas after the 19th century, the focus turned much more toward breeding for looks, and some of the behaviors just kind of happened to come along for the ride in a marginally uneven distribution. Mm -hmm. One last interesting thing that they're doing with this data is comparing it to what we know about human regions of DNA, because it turns out, for example, that the region of DNA that they isolated as being responsible for howling behavior 
is responsible for language development in humans. Oh. And yeah, so the takeaway I'm choosing here is not just that any dog can howl, but that any dog can ultimately learn to talk. Yeah. Like, you know, I might put up with howling if it gets us to that. Although, yeah. you know, it, it might be like Rick and Morty. You might not want to know what your dog is saying. <laughs> <laughs> Although I still like a bark because all dogs are good. I love this article. The That's right. <laughs> Next link. Next link. Okay. BBC Travel has a really cool article on the revival of a forgotten American fruit. Any guesses? Uh, I mean, if I've forgotten it, no. How am I going to do that? Yeah, I hadn't. I mean, I'd heard of it, but mostly as a byproduct of a cosmetic out of Australia, of all Hmm. things. But across large swaths of North America, an ancient fruit is growing wild, but largely forgotten. But a community of foodies, farmers, and scientists is eagerly trying to change that. The fruit in question is a pawpaw. P-A-W-P-A-W. I have heard of that. But have you ever tasted one? No. No, I don't even know what it looks like. Okay, well, let me tell you what it looks like. It kind of looks like if a mango were shaped like an avocado but didn't taper. And so it just sort of had this long cylindrical bit. And then it's got a yellow flesh a green rind, and then it's got these brown pod seeds that almost look like jackfruit seeds. Hmm. And it looks for all intents and purposes like a tropical fruit, but is in fact North America's largest native edible fruit. It grows wild in 26 U.S. states, including here in Texas. And yet, like us, most people have never heard of it. Commercial farmers shun them because they need a special growing environment and because they spoil only a few days after they're harvested. So that's why you don't see these yellow green fruits next to the grapes at the grocery store. They don't have the same kind of shelf life, right? But Mm. regardless, a community of avid pawpaw fans, they're trying to spread the love. Because, quote, they are so delicious <laughs> during the harvest season, which is typically a few weeks in late summer or early autumn. Michael Judd, author of For the Love of Pawpaws, a mini manual for growing and caring for pawpaws. <laughs> this author's diet consists mainly of pawpaws taken right off the branch. Wow. Quote, it's a nutrient rich superfood. It has antioxidants, all the amino acids. It's got magnesium, copper, zinc, iron, potassium, phosphorus, and vitamin C. So to help get the word out, Judd is hosting the seventh annual Pawpaw Festival this September, where you can enjoy jam making, pawpaw ice cream, music, lectures, and more. An even larger festival in Ohio has been drawing fans since 1999. Even last year, they had close to 10,000 visitors. So it is a subtropical fruit that migrated north from Central America, and it is atypical. It is the only member of the family not confined to the tropics. We're thinking they were dispersed north by megafauna like mastodons, mammoths, and sloths. The fruit's texture has been compared to custard, and the flavor, it's a blend of banana and mango with undertones of vanilla, caramel, pineapple, coconut, and melon, depending on the cultivar. Wow. It sounds good, yeah. Right? So they are kind of mango-shaped. They're yellow-green on the outside. They've got this gold-orange flesh. But it's still pretty impossible to find them at a grocery store. So you want to look for farmers selling the fresh fruit or its frozen pulp online, direct to consumer, or obviously at a farmer's market. If you really want to go all the way, pawpaw trees are also sold by nurseries. But Hmm. in case that's not enough for you, scientists are at work learning more about the pawpaw and finding ways to make it more economically viable. 
Iowa State University, they're developing a pawpaw variety with a longer shelf life and a larger fruit with fewer seeds. So, you know, have it on your radar. Keep a lookout for it. It seems to be just kind of under the radar, but I don't know, ship it on dry ice. I got to taste this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if they grow native in Texas, that means we can find them. We're going to have to go looking for them now. Yeah. Paw, paw, road trip. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include The Hollywood Madam Who Just Wanted to Sing, Rodney King's Finest Hour, and Experience, I Bake Recipes I Find on Gravestones. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on daminteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash daminterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Waisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. Thank you.